good afternoon everybody thank you all so much for tuning in i'm excited about this particular episode of money concepts uh, for two reasons one is uh, this episode is about capital allocation and uh, if you look at the life cycle of a business how businesses work well typically it starts with raising cash a business Uh, needs to raise cash because it wants to use the cash to build products and services and so on for its customers and then what it's going to do is uh, these products and services are typically going to be sold and uh, that earns a return for the business on the cash that was raised and then finally uh, some of this return is reinvested back into the business and hopefully used to improve the products and services or used to build even newer products and services and things like that so that increases profits and cash flows over time uh and then another part of this return the surplus which cannot be reinvested back into the business is distributed to owners through dividends and buybacks so this is typically how the life cycle of a business works and as investors what we want to do is we want to understand every part of this life cycle in some detail so we really understand the economics of the business and capital allocation it touches every part of this life cycle whether you're talking about raising cash or using that cash to uh, build products or uh, Uh, distributing the cash back to owners or reinvesting the cash or using the cash to acquire a competitor or something like that every part of a business is touched by the capital allocation decisions made by the managers of the business and a good capital allocator at the uh, who's running things at the company a good capital allocator can add an enormous amount of value over the years uh, to investors and a bad capital allocator can destroy tremendous amount of value so uh, if we want to understand as investors whether a business is going to be good to own for the long term or not it is important to understand how the capital is flowing in the business and whether the capital is being allocated in an intelligent sensible way or not uh, so this episode is all about capital allocation and so i'm uh, excited about doing this episode Uh, the second thing is a bookkeeping note this is going to be the final episode of this podcast on uh, uh, on call in so uh, next week we are not going to be meeting here we've been meeting every sunday for the last 7 months or something like that uh, and i have enjoyed this podcast immensely uh, i've enjoyed getting together with uh, with you guys answering questions uh, you've made me think about so many new points Uh, that i do, i would have never thought about if i hadn't done this podcast uh, i think as a result of doing this podcast i've become more comfortable speaking i i used to mostly communicate by writing and now i think i've become a better speaker as a result of doing this podcast and uh, it's just been such a positive uh, force in my life over the last 7 months and so i want to definitely continue doing this but it's not exactly clear right now how i'm going to do it possibly uh, we'll just be having zoom meetings or something like that in the future until i find something a little more permanent 
So uh, stay tuned. Uh, I will post in my Twitter account about uh, how we'll be meeting next week. I definitely want to continue this, but on Colin, this will be the last episode. All right. So let's uh, get back to capital allocation. So I said that the first stage in the life cycle of a business is raising cash. Uh, now, typically, there are many ways a business can raise cash. So the first most straightforward way is to issue equity in the business. Let's say you have an idea to build a great product, uh, but you need cash to uh, buy buy equipment to make this product or design this product or um, you know set up factories or uh, coordinate with manufacturers and, and so on. So you need a certain amount of cash uh, to, to build this great product in the business. So one straightforward way is to just issue equity. If you don't have the cash available on hand, um, you can go to somebody who has the cash and uh, give them a share of the company and then they will give you cash as a uh, as a compensation for getting the share of the company. So this is great. You, you now have the cash to go and achieve your dreams and they now have a, a piece of your company and the that piece can become very valuable later on. So they have something like an investment. So uh, the pros here is... Uh, you don't have any risk of default. So it's not like you've borrowed money and then you you may have to declare bankruptcy if your product idea doesn't work out or anything like that. There's no risk of default. Uh, But the con is there is dilution. Now you have to share whatever profits you get, you have to share with this other person who provided the capital. And uh, so that there is a certain amount of dilution for you. So whenever a company issues equity to raise capital, there's always dilution. That is the con. But then the pro is they don't incur any risk of default or anything like that. Uh, The second way that you can raise capital is to issue debt. You can go uh, to a bank or something and borrow money um, and then use that money to build your product. So the pro there is there's no dilution. Whatever profits you make uh, are yours to keep. You don't have to share it with anybody. But the con there is uh, well, there are multiple cons. The first con is uh, nobody's going to give you money for free. You, wh- Whenever you issue debt, uh, you have to pay, uh, p- pay back the principal, of course, but also pay interest on top of it. So uh, that, that is a con. Uh, the second con is there may be some covenants that are imposed. So when somebody lends you money, when a bank lends you money, they may want your uh, free cash flow to be a, a certain range or you they may want you to achieve a certain uh, EBITDA uh, target and, and so on. So they may impose all these extra conditions on you uh, and that may constrain what you can do and what you cannot do with the cash that you just raised and so on. So there are all these debt covenants that you have to worry about. Typically, that is also a con when you issue debt. Uh, and then the final con is uh, there is risk here. So uh, if you borrow too much money, if you uh, borrow it at a high interest rate or something like that, um, then if your product idea doesn't work out as expected, you may be forced to default and the bank may uh, take your assets from you and so on. So that that is a risk that you bear with equity that you don't bear. Uh, that is a risk that you bear with debt that you don't bear with equity. So whenever companies issue debt, uh, we have to worry about uh, not just the principal and interest repayments, but also debt covenants and the increased risk that comes from issuing this debt. Uh, the third way that a company can raise capital is to uh, 
is through float. So we have talked about this before. Warren Buffett loves float. Uh, so whenever you can use other people's money and earn a return on that money and keep part of that return for yourself, that's a great business. And that's what float is. So, for example, uh, if you let's let's say you you have this idea to uh, buy and sell a product. Um, now, if you go to your supplier and say, "Look, I want to sell your product in my store, but I don't have any money to pay you. Why don't you give me the product, and then I'll pay you back in thirty days after I manage to sell a portion of it?" Uh, in in that case, you don't have to raise capital from anybody. Uh, you just get this product from your supplier, uh, kind of for free. Um, you you have to pay the supplier back in 30 days but in those 30 days uh, you can sell the product and uh, you can you can pay the supplier using part of the proceeds that you get when you sell the product so this is float capital that you've sort of created by striking a deal with the supplier so it's not equity capital it's not debt capital it's a new kind of capital called float so the pro is there is no interest uh, that needs to be paid there's no dilution or anything like that you don't have to share your profits with your supplier uh, but the con is uh, if you're not able to sell that product in 30 days uh, or if you're not able to sell sufficient quantities of it then you may be in trouble because you have to pay back your supplier and you don't actually have the cash to pay the supplier back so that there are cons uh, risks associated with float as well but if you can use float in an intelligent way uh, like, for example, Warren Buffett does it through his uh, insurance operations at Berkshire. Uh, so they, they have um, hundreds of billions of dollars. I, I think it was $130 billion or something like that of float uh, in the business. And they use it in a reasonably intelligent way and they invest it and so on. And uh, that has been a big part of why Berkshire has been so successful over the years. Uh, so it can be very powerful. So that, that is all about raising cash, issuing equity, issuing debt, or issuing float. Uh, then what are the ways this cash can be used in a business? So that is the uh, second part of capital allocation. So the first part is raising cash in an opportunistic way, uh, in, in the best possible way. And the second uh, way, uh, and the second thing about capital allocation is how to use that raised cash intelligently. So there are typically five ways that a business can use cash. Uh, the, the first way is to invest that cash into ongoing projects. So if you if you have a business like, say, Starbucks or Walmart, uh, what they can do is they can, uh, what, whatever cash they raise, whenever they have a certain amount of cash, uh, they can just go uh, to a new town and open a new Starbucks or a new Walmart, right? And so this kind of... Um, this this is a kind of cookie cutter way uh, to increase their profits and increase their revenues and increase cash flows and so on. You just take the existing cash that you have and then you replicate whatever you're doing in some other part of the world. So restaurants and retailers and so on, they, they can do this very effectively. Whereas if you look at a company like Apple or Google, uh, they don't have this kind of cookie cutter formula. Uh, so if, if they have a certain amount of cash, for example, Google has billions of dollars of cash on its balance sheet, tens of billions of dollars. And they can't really, it's, it's not like a Starbucks kind of business. They, they can't just go and open a new search engine or something like that. Uh, they have to find, they have to constantly keep coming up with new ways of using this cash. Now, uh, granted, the business is growing. And so a certain amount of the cash can be used just to buy new computers and uh, do uh, uh, 
build a better Google Maps and things like that. So part of the uh, cash that they have can be used to improve their products and services. Uh, but the the vast majority of the cash, uh, they, they have to come up with newer and newer ways. They have to come up with new um, uh, acquisition candidates and, and so on. So reinvesting cash uh, back into the business uh, is much simpler when you have a Starbucks or Walmart kind of business, as opposed to if you have a business like Google. Uh, so in fact, uh, if, if, if you take uh, Jeff Bezos, for example, he's widely considered to be one of the world's best capital allocators. And uh, he spends an enormous amount of capital every year uh, in uh, acquiring new fulfillment centers and so on for Amazon, improving the logistics operations and so on. But there is a certain uh, venture capital-like quality to the capital at Amazon. So uh, for example, uh, Bezos uh, sunk hundreds of uh, millions of dollars into this Fire Phone. Uh, so some of you may remember that uh, Amazon came out with a phone, uh, Android phone some time ago called the Fire Phone, and it didn't work very well. It flopped. And uh, at the time, what Jeff Bezos said was, look, we are going to be uh, spending cash on investments like this. Some of them will work out. Some of them won't work out. So it's almost like a venture capital arm of Amazon. They fund new projects. And then if some of them are wildly successful, like, for example, Amazon went and acquired Twitch, uh, uh, the, the video game uh, streaming company. And th that is widely considered to be a success. And Amazon launched uh, Prime. And Amazon Prime is uh, widely considered to be a huge success. So there are some ongoing projects within Amazon. Uh, that are wildly successful. They earn a great return on the capital that was invested into them. Uh, but there are some total duds, like the Fire Phone. So it's it's not exactly like a Starbucks or a Walmart. With a, with a Walmart, they probably have a good idea of uh, if they go and open a new Walmart, the return profile is very predictable. So how much cash does it take to open a new Walmart? And then once a new Walmart is opened, uh, how much can that Walmart sell and how much in profits and cash flows it will make over time, that is a little bit uh, predictable. Whereas with something like a completely new venture, like a Fire Phone, uh, when you launch it, you really have no idea whether it will be successful or not. So uh, investing in this kind of business, uh, reinvesting cash back into the business, is always there is some amount of uncertainty around it. Uh, but the best kind of uncertainty is where... If, if it pays off, it pays off really big. Um, and if it doesn't pay off, if it's a total dud, it still doesn't end up killing you. And the Fire Phone was one such example. So if it had paid off, it may have paid off big time for Amazon. But it didn't. Uh, but its flop wasn't a big deal breaker for Amazon. Amazon is still a, a wildly successful company. And uh, the, the death of the Fire Phone didn't really kill Amazon. It cost them a couple hundred million dollars, but that's nothing. Uh, for a company with uh, with almost a trillion dollars in market cap and and so on, so uh, so that that's a a nice kind of bet to be able to make with existing cash. And if you can make those kinds of bets, uh, if some of them pay out over time, then um, the capital allocator at the helm can be considered to be fairly successful. Uh, so that is the first use of cash: uh, investing into ongoing projects or new projects at the company. Uh, the second use of cash is just to let the cash pile up on the balance sheet. So we don't have any uh, great opportunities to invest the cash right now. But uh, we've generated all this cash from our business operations. Or uh, 
uh, we've issued a whole bunch of debt at very attractive terms and uh, we, we have all this cash with us. We are just going to let the cash pile up on the balance sheet. That is the second option. Uh, but this comes with a certain amount of opportunity cost. So if you have, uh, let's say you're the CEO of a company, you, you have, say, $1 billion of cash on hand and you're just going to let it pile up on the balance sheet. Now, uh, let's say an investment candidate comes along uh, for this $1 billion. So for one billion, for this $1 billion, you can go and invest into an opportunity. And that opportunity will throw up $500 million of cash each year, say. So uh, what happens is, uh, if you just look at the IRR, the internal rate of return of this opportunity, what, what we do is we invest $1 billion of cash into this opportunity. And then once we invest this $1 billion, uh, this opportunity is going to give us 500 million each year in perpetuity. So that's a 50% return on investment, right? So we, we if, if you can invest $1 billion and get back 500 million every year, your uh, internal rate of return, IRR, is 50% per year. Uh, that's a great rate of return. Uh, but that is only if you invest the cash right away and you get, 50, uh, you get your 50% every year. Uh, what if you don't invest the cash right away? Let's say you have to sit on this cash for five years uh, until an investment opportunity comes along in the future. So the, it's the same $1 billion, uh, but you first sit on this $1 billion for five years. And then in the sixth year, this great investment opportunity comes along and it gives you $500 million every year starting from the sixth year onwards. So uh, it's like if you calculate the IRR of this sequence, where for the first five years, the $1 billion yields nothing. And then from the sixth year onwards, the 1 billion yields 500 million every year. Uh, now, if you calculate the IRR of this sequence, that works out to only about 20%. So uh, if you could invest the cash right away and earn a return on it, uh, you get a 50% return. But if you let the cash pile up on the balance sheet for a while, for five years, and only then invest it into the same opportunity, the return is only 20%. So there is a huge opportunity cost to just letting the cash pile up on the balance sheet. And today, a lot of companies, um, high-tech companies, especially Google, Facebook, Apple, uh, they, they all have like billions of dollars uh, just piled up on the balance sheet that are just sitting there, not earning anything. And even if they find great opportunities in the future to invest the cash, uh, there is an opportunity cost to just letting the cash sit there for a while. And so uh, that opportunity cost is something that shareholders of the business will have to bear. So uh, whenever we see a business with tons of cash on the balance sheet, we have to remind ourselves that this cash uh, is an opportunity. There is an opportunity cost associated with this cash when we are trying to analyze uh, the capital allocation at this company. And if that cash just sits there forever uh, without ever being returned uh, to shareholders, then we don't really see any benefit from that cash at all. So that would be a terrible uh, example of, uh, that would be an example of terrible capital allocation. If you just let the cash sit on the balance sheet and probably lose purchasing power due to inflation without using it in any way, without acquiring anybody, without investing into any project, without returning it to shareholders, that is actually terrible capital allocation. Uh, but a lot of companies uh, do things like this. So we have to keep that in mind while analyzing whether these companies are a good fit for our portfolio or not. So that, that is the second use of cash, just letting cash pile up on the balance sheet. Uh, the third use of cash is to make acquisitions. Uh, so there are 
typically two kinds of acquisitions. Um, there, there are horizontal acquisitions and vertical acquisitions. Where, uh, a company is able to uh, market its existing products to uh, new customers or a new set of customers or so- something like that. So uh, the company does exactly what it is doing, uh, but it is able to get a whole bunch of new customers as a result, or it's able to push a, a new product to its existing customers. So for example, if you, if you take the Coca-Cola company, uh, so they, they are a beverage company. So they, they have expertise in uh, distributing beverages all over the world and so on. So a few years ago, uh, Coca-Cola went and acquired this other company called Honest Tea. Uh, so Honest Tea is now uh, a wholly owned subsidiary of Coca-Cola. And that is something like a horizontal acquisition because now what Coca-Cola can do is it can take this Honest Tea and it can use its distribution network to push this Honest Tea, uh, a new beverage across the world. And so uh, Coca-Cola gets to add a new product to its portfolio and also market that product to its uh, existing customers all over the world. Uh, so so that, that is a horizontal acquisition where Coca-Cola already knows how to, how to market beverages and so on. And so it just adds uh, a product to its portfolio that leverages that particular existing strength. Uh, the second type of acquisition is a vertical acquisition where uh, what a company does is it so, so every every company has a value chain. So that there are raw materials and that there are end customers, and a company serves a particular role uh, between uh, the raw materials and the end user. Now, if the company manages to acquire another company and play a bigger role in this whole process of adding value to the customer, uh, then that is called a vertical acquisition. So, a simple example is the same Coca Cola. Uh, it, previously, it used to have a strategy where it would go and acquire its own bottlers. So, um, so there there is a, a a bottling company, and what the bottling company would do is it would go and uh, just bottle drinks for Coca Cola. So it would uh, take uh, the syrup from Coca Cola and then um, mix that syrup with water and get get uh, drinks, and then it would bottle the drinks. Uh, and then it would uh, sell the sell uh, either sell the bottle drink back to Coca Cola or have it uh, distributed to uh, a bunch of vendors and so on. Uh, so Coca Cola at one time said that uh, they are going to go and acquire these bottlers to b- bring these bottling capabilities in house. And so what happened uh, is this: this is a vertical acquisition where Coca Cola now plays a bigger role. They not only uh, make the syrup. But they also bottle the syrup and get the syrup to end um, uh, users, uh, uh, to, to restaurants that are selling uh, bottles of Coca-Cola and, and so on. So uh, when Coca-Cola goes and acquires a bottler, uh, it's making a vertical acquisition because it's bringing more capabilities than what it currently has. Uh, so so that, that's a vertical acquisition. Uh, but not all acquisitions fall uh, neatly into uh, either horizontal or vertical. So, for example, Google went and acquired YouTube. In some ways, you can argue that it's a horizontal acquisition because uh, it uh, it serves more ads to people, right? 
So previously, Google, before it acquired YouTube, it was just serving up ads along with its uh, search results or whatever. Now, after acquiring YouTube, it is serving up uh, the same ads, but through uh, but uh, th- accompanying videos and things like that. So, so it's kind of like a horizontal acquisition if you look at it that way. Uh, but it's also a vertical acquisition because in some... Previously, Google was not really hosting uh, any of the content that it was serving. So it was just a search engine. And uh, so when people would search for something, it would show them search results and uh, along with a bunch of ads. But the, the search results are not really hosted by Google. They are hosted by somebody else. Uh, and Google just lets you uh, click to that somebody else. Whereas now, uh, Google hosts the, uh, the content of YouTube. Uh, on its own servers and so on. So th- in, in that sense, uh, it brings the hosting uh, into its own platform. And so that can be considered a vertical acquisition if you look at it that way. So the, the moral of the story is uh, it, the, there's no real easy way to classify an acquisition as either horizontal or vertical. Uh, most acquisitions have characteristics of both. Uh, so it, it, some some acquisitions uh add a tremendous amount of value. So Google acquiring YouTube is a great example where uh, Google paid a a very small amount, something like $1.2 billion or something like that for YouTube. And today, uh, if you just look at uh, um, how how big YouTube is, even with all the extra capital that Google had to sink into YouTube, uh, it's just been uh, an absolutely stellar acquisition for YouTube. So a capital allocator who had uh, $1 billion and decided that he's going to use this $1 billion uh, long time ago to acquire YouTube, uh, that was an excellent capital allocation decisions. And uh, so companies can really transform uh, results for their owners if they acquire the right kind of uh, companies. And Google did that with YouTube. Uh, So that is the third use of cash, acquisitions. Uh, The the fourth use of cash is to just pay down debt. So if, if you have too much debt, um, or if you have an uncomfortably large amount of debt, uh, you can use the cash uh, to, to pay down some of it. And uh, that way you get to save on interest and principal. Uh, uh, you, 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 well, you, you get to save on interest payments because the principal is what you use to pay, pay down uh, the debt. Uh, but you also get to take some risk off the table because uh, previously this uh, extra debt load uh, may have added a certain amount of risk uh, to to your operations because if if you were not able to raise enough cash, you may have struggled uh, to pay the, these interest and pay, uh, principal payments and so on. So that risk is reduced. So uh, this is cash being used to bring down risk, essentially. So uh, so paying down debt is the fourth kind of uh, um, thing that companies can do with cash. Uh, And the fifth and final thing is to just return the cash back to uh, the owners of the company. Say, uh, I'm not able to find a good acquisition candidate or I'm not able to find good projects to invest in. Uh, I don't have too much debt on the books, so I don't want to pay down the debt. Uh, So uh, I'm just returning the cash back to owners. Uh, So there are, again, two ways to do this. One is through dividends. Uh, So this is very straightforward. You just issue a check and uh, give the check to the owners and they have the cash on hand. Uh, The second way is through buybacks where uh, you go to some of the owners and then you buy back their stock uh, in in the company and then the stock is retired. Uh, So now what happens is uh, those owners who sold the stock 
to the company during a buyback they are no longer owners uh, or their ownership stake is reduced because they sold part of their uh, holdings to the company the other owners who did not sell their shares their ownership stake has increased uh, and so their claim on the future profits and future cash flows of the company is now higher as a result uh, so buybacks uh, are not as straightforward as dividends uh, but they they have some pros so one one important uh, pro of a buyback is the tax advantages so when a company issues dividends to shareholders uh, shareholders probably have to pay a tax on the dividend whereas if a company goes and does buybacks uh, there's no tax that shareholders have to pay so that uh, double taxation uh, shareholders save on that uh, the second pro is there's no reinvestment risk with a buyback so when a company issues a dividend suppose a company gave me a, a say a $10000 dividend because i own shares in the company now i have to find a new way to invest this $10000 after paying taxes on it uh, so uh, if the company just did a buyback I, i don't have to worry about finding a new place to invest this $10000 so i i can just rest easy knowing that uh, the company is buying back its own shares uh, but there are also cons associated with buybacks so one is buybacks are very frequently used to uh, do all kinds of gaming uh, by corporate executives so one uh, w- one typical scenario is uh, when executives grant uh, options to themselves so uh, the, the ceo gets a whole bunch of stock options and so on and that dilutes the stake of existing shareholders uh, but the shareholders don't really see it because at the same time that the ceo is given a whole bunch of shares uh, the shares are also being bought back so the number of shares outstanding remains constant but uh, this is just a transfer of wealth from the shareholders to the ceo it's not like the owners have seen uh, in any cash their, their ownership stake in the company has not increased or anything because uh, whatever uh, the buyback how much the buyback would have increased the stake uh, uh, in the company what has happened is uh, the the dilution due to offering the ceo stock based compensation has reduced uh, Uh, re- reduce that increase in stake and so now the the net uh, is zero pretty much uh, so, so there are a lot of games like this that companies like to play uh, so you have to be careful whenever a company uh, does buybacks we we have to ask ourselves is this buyback just uh, offsetting dilution or is it actually bringing down the share count so we've discussed this on the podcast before uh, so that that is that and the other con is buybacks have to be made at the right price so uh, a lot of times what companies do is they don't really uh, buy back shares when the price is low so for example during uh, the covid crisis march of 2020 uh, the stocks of many companies went down 30% 40% and so on uh, but at that time that that would have been the best time to do buybacks because the share price was low you could retire a lot of shares if you did buybacks at that time uh, but a lot of companies at that time uh because there was so much uncertainty they decided that they want to conserve cash and not use the cash for buybacks and so what what happened was uh they they actually suspended their buybacks at the time at the exact time that the shares price was low the companies decided that they are going to stop doing buybacks and th- that is generally not uh, so it's, it's not an inspired strategy so if if you're going to buyback stock only when it is overpriced and not when it is underpriced Uh, you're doing a systematic disservice to continuing shareholders uh, so so the, we have to keep that in mind so buybacks are great when they are made at the right price 
uh, buybacks are can be terrible for shareholders, continuing shareholders, if they are made at the wrong price. Uh, so uh, th- these are the five ways to use cash. Uh, so to just to quickly summarize, the first way to use cash is to invest it into ongoing projects or new projects. Uh, the second way is to just let it pile up on the balance sheet, but there's an opportunity cost associated with that. The third way is to do acquisitions, uh, horizontal, vertical, or mixed acquisitions. Uh, the fourth way is to pay down debt. And the fifth way is to return the cash to owners, either through dividends or through buybacks. These are the five main ways businesses use cash. And uh, there's also a hybrid uh, uh, way. So, for example, a company can make an acquisition, but instead of using cash to make the acquisition, they can uh, use stock uh, for the acquisition. So this is like a two-step process. The first step is issuing stock and then uh, to, to raise cash. And then the second step is to uh, use the raised cash to go and make the acquisition. So it, it can it's equivalent to these two steps. So uh, making a stock-based acquisition is, is also a capital allocation decision uh, when you break it down into uh, two equivalent steps. Uh, so so when, when, when a company does things like this, uh, you have to be sure that the amount of business value that they're giving up uh, by issuing stock uh, they at least get back as much value uh, through the acquired company uh, as they are giving up. So when a company issues stock and uh, uses the stock to go and acquire a second company, we have to make sure that uh, whatever dilution that the existing shareholders have incurred as a result of this new stock that is out there is more than made up for by uh, the stake that the shareholders get in the second company, in the company that is being acquired through the that company's cash flows and earnings and so on. So the, these are broadly the uh, the various kinds of uh, decisions that come into play when you, when when you talk about capital allocation. So if you want to learn more about this, I recommend this book called uh, Outsiders by uh, William Thorndike. It's it's an excellent book. Uh, it goes through a, a, a large number of different examples of uh, great capital allocators. And uh, I, I, I learned a lot by reading this book. So I think you, you'll also learn quite a bit. Um, and uh, so I've already talked for quite a long time. So I'd like to uh, stop my monologue now and uh, take callers. Any, anyone wants to ask a question or... Okay, we have a caller. His name is Angad Singh. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Um, thank you. That was really helpful. Uh, do you view like cash sitting on the balance sheet of companies like Google and Apple for decades at this point as like evidence that the companies have not done as good a job of capital allocation, for example, as compared to Amazon? Uh well, it is really hard for these companies to do <laughs> a good job of capital allocation with the cash on the balance sheet because the, these companies are such wonderful businesses. They throw up so much cash that it is hard to find ways to invest so much cash uh, back into the business or to acquire another company or, or so on. So, uh, I, I mean, if, if, you, if you take another company like, like Cisco or some, somebody else, uh, Hewlett Packard, or uh, there are companies that have a huge, uh, long history of making all kinds of questionable uh, acquisitions and so on. So uh, it's not just the cash on the balance sheet that that is a red flag. Because if you 
uh, go and make, if you keep the cash on the balance sheet, at least that gives you optionality. Whereas if you go and uh, burn that cash on some uh, stupid acquisition or something like that, uh, sure, you get rid of the cash on the balance sheet, but that's still not a great uh, capital allocation decision. So uh, at any given time, uh, the the best thing to do maybe to keep cash on the balance sheet, uh, waiting for uh, future opportunities. So um, when when Steve Jobs was running the show at Apple, he decided that uh, he's just going to pile up cash on the balance sheet. Uh, and then when Tim Cook took over, for example, he decided that okay, we we have too much cash and we have no idea what to do with all this cash. So we are going to uh, start a big buyback program. Uh, spend hundreds of billions of dollars buying back stock. And we are also going to uh, start issuing a dividend to our shareholders and so on. So I I think that was the right decision for Apple at that time, given that Apple had never really uh, made any sizable acquisition. Apple is not a company that has grown uh, in a big way through acquisitions. So uh, given that uh, culture at Apple, I think Tim Cook's decision to uh, buy back stock and uh, issue a dividend and so on. That was the right decision. But still, Apple has billions of dollars. Even today, after doing all the buybacks and after issuing billions of dollars in dividends, they still have so much cash on the balance sheet simply because the cash is coming in the door uh, much faster <laughs> than what they can uh, spend it on. And uh, so, so, so cash on the balance sheet is still... Well, I mean, they have spent quite a bit of it on buybacks and so on, but cash is coming in so fast that it's hard to spend it on buybacks and dividends and other things. Uh, so so that that is a good problem to have. It's uh, You have so much cash and you don't know what to do with it. With it. I, I would rather have that problem than the other problem of having too little cash and uh, having to scrounge for cash. Uh, so, so yes, it may be an indication that uh, capital allocation at the company is uh, uh, there's not not many good ways to use that much cash, but it's uh, it's a high class problem to have. I mean that that's that, a totally that fair sense. point. I mean I think that speaks more to the rest of the business rather than the capital allocation. I mean as an example, I work at Google and I feel like you know we have so much cash on the balance sheet, but we haven't really made any big acquisitions in a long time. And if now is like not, you know, when are those opportunities going to present themselves, especially in like a high inflation environment when that money is losing purchasing power and maybe like macro factors have depressed the market. Like if Google is not aggressively going and making acquisitions right now or not aggressively buying back stock, like aren't they making poor capital allocation decisions? Uh, Well, Google has recently ramped up its uh, stock buyback uh, program and, um, I, I would say that if, if they instituted a dividend, uh, I, I would really uh, like that. I, I think that is the right capital allocation decision. Um, but I, I have a lot of respect for Ruth Porat, the CFO of Google, and uh, she's slowly turning things around. Uh, maybe not as fast as we would like. But um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> they... they, they they unquestionably have way more cash on the balance sheet than what they are likely to need in the future for any 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 kind of business initiative or anything like that. And uh, as as long as they don't blow up uh, the the cash on uh, some crazy moonshots and things like that, 
I, I'm generally okay with giving them the benefit of the doubt uh, because they they have far more visibility and they into what they're doing with the cash and they they probably have a roadmap in mind that outside investors like us can't really uh, understand. So I, I would give them the benefit of doubt for a while. But yeah, if, if they are just going to keep accumulating cash, uh, not give it out to shareholders, not make any kinds of acquisitions, not invest it in an intelligent way and so on, uh, then yes, at some point we have to think about whether Google is uh, right for our portfolios or not because that cash is not really doing anything for us. Sure. Uh, the next caller is Rajan. Hello, Rajan. I, I think you're on mute. Hello. 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 Can you hear? Me? Yes, I can hear you. Yes. I can. Okay. So my question is uh, that uh, there are certain companies who will be growing organically and their EPS will grow. Now they have got uh, cash in their hand and they will be doing multiple small acquisitions. So how do we actually we know that whether that acquisitions are really adding any values because uh, whether they do acquisitions or not the dps will be growing just because their uh, main business is so strong okay so how do we understand and uh, differentiate uh, oh i hope you understood what i meant uh, right Hello? so absolutely uh, that, that is a great question. So uh, we have to sort of understand what uh, what kinds of acquisitions these are. So, for example, if, if it is a new uh, product that comes into the fold because the company went and acquired another company, uh, then it is reasonably easy to tell uh, how, how much of the growth comes uh, in, in the company's revenue came from existing products and how much uh, of the growth came from the new product that that was acquired. Uh, so there are lots of companies that are serial acquirers. Uh, so Constellation Software is a, is a company. Uh, they, their, their whole business model is they, they roll up a large number of uh, smaller companies and then try to, um, um, uh, try to add those companies to the mothership and get some value out of it and, and so on. Uh, that, there are other companies like uh, Roper Industries, for example, uh, they, they also uh, try to roll up a large number of other companies and then uh, try to use them to uh, increase their revenues and profits and so on. But if the parent company's revenues and profits are, already, profits growing, are already growing, then we, uh, we have to understand, okay, how much cash was spent on an acquisition and how much, how much of the growth that the company achieved is due to the acquisition and how much is because the existing business before the acquisition was already growing. And that is a little hard to uh, analyze in many cases because uh, the, the, the new company that was acquired may have brought in, there may be a key engineer who came along with the acquisition, for example. And that engineer may have uh, come and improved the existing products of the company. And so that may have created some growth. So now uh, that growth would not have happened uh, without the acquisition uh, because that engineer would not have come on without the acquisition. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it just looks from the outside, it looks like uh, these existing 
there was an existing product and that existing product is growing um and this new acquisition didn't really contribute anything right uh, so it, it's it's hard to decide on that uh, but usually uh, if if uh, if the manager if if the ceo writes good shareholder letters and so on so when warren buffett acquires a company he typically writes uh, uh, in in his letters to berkshire shareholders he he talks about Uh, the the new capabilities that berkshire is getting because of uh, this acquisition and how it's going to impact uh, if it's a big acquisition how how it's going to impact uh, operations at berkshire and things like that so if the ceo is not transparent about those things it's harder for investors to uh, come up with an assessment whether uh, the money spent on acquisitions is being spent wisely or not it, it is a challenge but we should just do do the best that we can to figure out whether the cash that is being paid for an acquisition uh, or or the stock that is being paid for an acquisition uh, whether that is producing a good return for investors uh, in terms of future cash flows and earnings and so on and uh, the the last thing i would add is that uh, the the best indicator of whether uh, a company is um uh, 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 whether a company is making good capital allocation decisions or not uh, because there's a huge difference between earnings and cash flows so if i if i tell you what the eps of a of a company is going to be uh, forever from now into the future uh, in all future years if i tell you what the eps is going to be uh, uh, that doesn't necessarily give you a full picture of what's going on at the company whereas if i tell you what the cash flows or dividends free cash flow and dividends uh, in the company are going to be uh, per share over the next several years uh, that gives you a much better picture of how much cash uh, is actually being uh, returned to shareholders how much cash is actually available to be taken out by shareholders and things like that so i would say uh, we shouldn't just focus on eps we should also focus on free cash flow owner earnings uh dividends things like that okay okay uh, the the next caller is ganesh uh hey tanke thanks hey. for taking the call um uh, so uh you mentioned that how the uh the, the price of the stock actually influence or or could influence the buyback decision timing of the companies right so that got me thinking on really more broadly uh on how the stock price affects all of the five activities that you mentioned so so can you talk to that on how the stock price influences the various capital allocation activities of the company uh, absolutely that that is such a great question yes the the stock price is something that the company may not have a whole lot of control over but it has to use the stock price in an opportunistic way so great capital allocators uh, like um, uh, henry singleton at teledyne and uh, even warren buffett at at berkshire hathaway when when the stock is highly priced they try to use the stock as a currency for making acquisitions so when uh, warren buffett paid for uh, general re Uh, at the time uh, berkshire was trading at something like three times book value or something like that warren buffett knew that the uh, the stock is 
probably overpriced at these levels. Uh, but he didn't uh, know what to do with it. And so he said, okay, let me just use this overpriced stock as currency. Let me go and acquire another insurance company. And then that adds to Berkshire's base of float and earning power and things like that. So uh, Buffett did uh, did that. And so when, when the stock price is high, it's, it's a good idea to uh, either raise cash by issuing equity or use the stock uh, in an acquisition or something like that uh, so uh, that 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 is a great uh, use uh, that that is a great uh, use of uh, the the opportunity that mr market is giving you by overpricing your shares um the the second thing is what what happens if the stock price is low if if you believe that uh, the stock price is low uh, the the at that time, uh, you shouldn't go and use your stock to go and acquire another company or something. You should try to acquire the other company for cash uh, because your, your stock uh, may be at a depressed level. Uh, when the stock price is low, it's a great idea to go and do buybacks, for example. So um, if, if you have sufficient amount of cash on hand, uh, there is a, you, you can go and acquire cash, uh, acquire your stock. So Apple, for example, uh, when it first started its buybacks under under Tim Cook, uh, the stock was trading at something like uh, 12 times earnings or some, something like that, some very uh, low multiple of earnings. So uh, that was a great uh, capital allocation by, by Tim Cook and his team there. And in fact, that is one of the reasons why uh, Buffett decided to buy into Apple because they had finally ended the policy of uh, piling up billions and billions of dollars of cash. And they were actually using the cash to go and uh, buy back their own shares and to issue a dividend and take all these shareholder friendly actions, which told Buffett that, okay, these guys are doing something reasonable with the with the huge cash hold that they have. Uh, so uh, absolutely, when, when, when the market gives you a gift in the form of either wildly overpriced stock or uh, underpriced, highly underpriced stock, uh, you have to pounce opportunistically and uh, when when the stock is overpriced, you use try to use it as currency for other acquisitions, or try to just raise equity. And when the stock is underpriced, uh, you try to go and do buybacks. That that's what great capital allocators uh, try to do. But it's much um, harder to uh, it's much easier to say than do it because you know if if you think a stock is underpriced and uh, you, you start a buyback program, for example. Um, who, who's to say that after you buy back a whole bunch of stocks, the uh, whole bunch of your own shares, the stock price won't drop even lower. Uh, so so uh, you don't have a whole lot of control over this process. So uh, you, you kind of have to make the best decision that you can uh, under the circumstances, taking into account uh, that the stock can continue, the stock market can continue to be irrational uh, for a long time. Okay, great. Thank you. Sure. Uh, the the next caller is Alex. Hey, thank you. How are you? Uh, hey, doing good. Again, for everything you do, and uh, glad that you'll be doing in a new platform like either Zoom or whatever you you find um, good for for this show because it's it's really been amazing and a lot of learnings I I got through here. Um, yeah, so that's the first part. My, my question, I don't know if you, if you, if you 
don't like to answer because it's in a particular company. I wanted to ask you what is your opinion on uh, Mark Zuckerberg capital allocation skills? Or, I mean, I don't know if I can ask that or not since it's a particular company. Uh, I mean, I, I can give you my opinion <laughs> for what it's worth. Um, yeah, I mean, so... that, that's what I want. Yeah, if possible. Yeah. Uh, right, right, absolutely. So Mark Zuckerberg... Uh, has billions of dollars of cash on, on the balance sheet. And uh, it's not always easy for him to go and um, use this cash in a sensible way because uh, f- first, there, there aren't that many companies that are worth that many billions of dollars. So if Mark Zuckerberg has to go and acquire a company and that company has to, that, that acquisition has to move the needle at, at Facebook, it's very hard to find acquisition targets in the tens of billions of dollars range that also make financial sense. So Mark Zuckerberg has a very hard capital allocation problem at Facebook. Uh, but that said, he's done. Uh, he, he's had tremendous amount of success, especially with the Instagram acquisition. Just the acquisition of Instagram, it, it added so much of value uh, to the Facebook family of apps, uh, so 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 that 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 was uh, uh, s- such a spectacular success. So just that decision, that single decision, probably added hundreds of billions of dollars to Facebook's market cap and and so on. So that was a great capital allocation decision. Um, WhatsApp, I am not so sure because uh, he spent about twenty billion dollars acquiring WhatsApp. And uh, it seems to me that the rollout of new features, WhatsApp has remained pretty much unchanged since the day he uh, acquired WhatsApp. So there is all this WhatsApp business and uh, there's this whole idea that businesses can use WhatsApp to communicate much better with their customers and so on. Uh, but I think the, the pace of development on that front has been fairly slow. So I'm I'm not sure if that is a good example of capital allocation or that that is an example of good capital allocation or not, but I suppose time will tell. Uh, then uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, obviously he invested a lot of money into uh, just improving the mobile experience at Facebook. So around 2012 or something like that, when mobile phones were first becoming popular, at the time Facebook was just a desktop. And a lot of people were worried, saying, look, Facebook is a great desktop app, but the whole world is moving to mobile uh, and uh, Facebook is still stuck in the desktop world. And how will Facebook uh, be successful in, in a mobile world? Uh, at, at the time, there were a lot of investors who's, who actually shorted Facebook because they thought that it won't be able to adapt to this new computing platform. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg at the time uh, he took it up as a sort of challenge and uh, sunk in a, a lot of time and money into improving the experience for both advertisers and users on the mobile app. And then uh, we, we see that today Facebook is one of the most widely used um, mobile apps. And so that that was a great capital allocation decision, uh, sinking capital into improving the experience uh, on on the mobile app, so that that was a great capital allocation decision, and this whole um, um, Meta thing, renaming the company to Meta and uh, uh, focusing on uh, AR and VR experiences, 
I don't have a um, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about that space to have an opinion whether this is a good use of capital or not. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is obviously a visionary and uh, he he thinks uh, he knows what the next big thing is. And uh, so he's sort of putting his money where his mouth is and uh, uh, trying to invest billions of dollars into AR and VR technologies at Facebook. And who knows, maybe... maybe it's, uh, we'll come back 10 years later and say what, what a great capital allocation decision it was. Or maybe we'll come back 10 years later and say it was a terrible use of capital, uh, spending $10 billion on this and uh, it went nowhere or something like that. It's, it's a little too early to tell and I, I don't have the expertise. But just based on Mark Zuckerberg's uh, track record, acquiring Instagram and um, uh, uh, striking a partnership with Reliance uh, in, in India, all, all these different things. Uh, I, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on, on those things. And uh, Mark Zuckerberg is also constrained in a big way because uh, Facebook is a very, uh, people love to hate Facebook. Um, people in Congress and uh, so on, uh, the, the FTC and everybody loves to hate on Facebook. So, the problem is when Mark Zuckerberg wants to go and acquire a company, uh, the regulators will probably look at that acquisition very, very seriously. And uh, if there's any reason at all they can find to block the acquisition, they will. And so Mark Zuckerberg's hands are really tied. He uh, can't really do a whole lot of uh, uh, big impact acquisitions without raising a huge amount of regulatory scrutiny. So his his hands are tied. And with all these constraints, I think he's doing a very good job at capital allocation. Facebook still has billions of dollars on its balance sheet and the stock is depressed. Uh, so he has ramped up buybacks of the stock. I think that is a good uh, decision as well um, at, at Facebook. So um, yeah, o- overall, I'd say he he's a very good capital allocator. Um, he may have a few missteps here and there, but overall he has added hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to Facebook's market cap through his capital allocation decisions. Does that, does that answer the question? Yes, perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so we have uh, Rajan again. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know what happened there, but uh, Rajan disappeared for a minute and now he's back. Hello? Hello. I want to ask question regarding uh, uh, companies which may have, let's say, good to excellent business, but they constantly buy back their shares uh, above their uh, intrinsic value or, I mean, exorbitant price. Okay. So what should, a, uh, I mean, if you are already, already holding those kind of companies, what should be the recourse in that scenario? Um, yeah, that that's a great question. Well, so there are companies uh, that have been buying back shares at, at fairly high prices for, for many years. And uh, those buybacks have, in fact, ended up creating lots of value. So, for example, that, that is this company called NVR in the US. Uh, it's, it's a home builder. And uh, NVR has been using almost every dollar of free cash flow to buy back its shares. 
then there is this company called AutoZone. Uh, AutoZone has also been using every dollar of e- free cash flow for the last uh, 20 years or something like that to uh, buy back their own stock. So both these uh, stocks, NVR and AutoZone, they don't pay any dividends. Uh, they just use every possible dollar to buy back their own shares. And over time, they've managed to retire a significant chunk of their outstanding shares and payments over uh, over the period that they've been doing these buybacks for. So uh, it's a little difficult to tell when a company is doing a share buyback, whether this buyback is uh, above intrinsic value or below intrinsic value. Because intrinsic value itself is kind of a murky concept. So intrinsic value is the present value of all future cash flows of the company uh, discounted at an appropriate rate. That's the way intrinsic value is usually defined. So if you say that this company is going to keep uh, spending every dollar of uh, free cash flow on uh, buybacks, at some point in time, it has to stop the buybacks and start issuing a dividend, right? Because if it doesn't do that, if, if the company from now up to forever, it is just going to use every dollar that it makes to buy back its own shares, then if you buy the shares and then you hold on to these shares forever, uh, what is the value that you'll be getting from this company? It's exactly zero because uh, the company is going to just keep buying back shares and you're never going to shell, sell your shares. You're just going to buy and hold these shares forever. So the intrinsic value to you is actually zero because the cash flows to you are zero. Um, so now you have to take a call whether uh, you're going to buy a company with an intrinsic value of zero or, or not, if the company continues doing this. So at some point in time, even companies that have been doing buybacks for many years, at some point of time, if they have to add value to uh, continuing shareholders, they have to issue a dividend. So Ber- Berkshire Hathaway, for example, for 50 years, or uh, 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 for, for 60 years, hasn't issued a single dividend. Uh, but now, uh, eventually, they, they will have to start issuing a dividend uh, sim- simply because uh, that is the best capital allocation decision they, they can make at that point in time. So it, it's your guess or my guess uh, whether that point is 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now. And... If it's 10 years from now, the intrinsic value calculation will be very different. If it's 20 years from now, the intrinsic value calculation will be very different. So uh, it's very hard to tell when a company is buying back shares, whether it is buying them above intrinsic value or below intrinsic value. Uh, but in, in general, the theory is that whenever a company spends money buying back shares below intrinsic value, what happens is the people who sell shares to the company Uh, as part of the buyback, those people lose value and the people who continue holding the shares, the continuing shareholders, they gain value as a result of this capital allocation decision. Uh, but when a company buys its shares above intrinsic value, then uh, continuing shareholders are hurt and selling shareholders benefit. So this is the theory, but it's very hard to actually tell in practice by applying this theory whether Uh, company is doing the right thing or not, whether it is buying shares above intrinsic value or below intrinsic value. But there are examples of companies that have, who, whose shares now are far, far higher than what they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, because over these 10 years or 20 years, they've been systematically buying and retiring a big portion of their shares. 
So investors who invested into these uh, stocks 10 or 20 years ago, they, they've done very well for themselves. I don't know if that answers the question or not. Uh, actually, uh, you answered it, but uh, your point was that we actually do not know intrinsic value. But what in the case we are sure about uh, the value and company does buy back above the price. That's what I was telling. So should we continue holding? Because at the end, buying base is nothing but company issues dividend to you and then you buy shares. It, it's, uh, these two actions yeah, can be combined to one action like buying back. So that's what I was asking. Well, um, you're, you're right that a buyback is essentially uh, it's equivalent to two actions uh, one, one uh, dividend and then followed by you buying back uh, shares to increase your stake in the company you you can view a buyback as equivalent to that uh, well there are some tax consequences and so on but if you ignore the tax consequences these two are sort of equivalent ways of looking at the thing uh, and then if you're sure that uh, the company is trading well above intrinsic value then when the company issues you a dividend, why would you use the dividend to buy shares at well above intrinsic value? So if you want a 10% return uh, from holding the shares in the company, uh, and then you discount the future cash flows uh, of the company at, at that 10%, uh, but you get a price that is way below the current market price, then why would you uh, use your dividend to buy those shares at a price that is higher than the return uh, than the price that will give you the return that you require. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense, right? So in, in that particular case, if you're sure that the company is buying back shares at above intrinsic value, they are actually uh, destroying value for continuing shareholders. And so uh, in, in your case, you should think hard about whether you want to be a continuing shareholder or not. So it also depends on what other opportunities you have available. Uh, if you sell this company, do you know of other opportunities that will, uh, with high probability, get you a better return? So uh, if that is not the case, then you may be better off just sticking with this company because any any estimate of intrinsic value is just an estimate. Yes. Sure. Okay. I think uh, they should more be giving dividends or... Uh... I mean, issuing your their own sale in that scenario, that would be great. Well, if, if they can find a use for the capital, sure. Okay, okay. thanks. In the meantime, I'll take uh, uh, the question from Alex, who is the next caller. Hey, thank you. How are you? <laughs> Me hey. again. Long time. Um, I, wa I wanted to ask you, what is your process of finding like new stocks? Like, do you use value line? I know you read the Wall Street Journal, but I mean, one, what is, what is your favorite like publication? Maybe the Wall Street Journal. And I mean, yeah, what is your process? Uh, well, so Wall Street Journal is uh, one place where I source ideas from. So I, I, I read the, n not necessarily the politics section or anything like that. Uh, I, I try to read the business and finance section of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, so typically uh, the that section will contain articles about a bunch of different companies on any given day. 
and over a period of time just by reading these articles i form some opinion of uh, how, how good a company is and so on and if i come across a new company that i haven't heard of before uh, i i i have a watch list on my phone and i will add add it to the watch list um so these days what i do is whenever i find a new comp- uh, well i should stress that the wall street journal is not the only source where i get ideas from i i listen to a bunch of podcasts uh, i read some quarterly investment letters written by a whole bunch of fund managers uh, i read books and so on so i i source ideas from a variety of different places uh, i follow a bunch of very smart people uh, on on twitter and sometimes they give me ideas and i i subscribe to a bunch of newsletters and and so on so uh, i i source ideas from a variety of uh, places and when i get an idea what i do is i usually the first step is i go to uh, this wonderful website called ticker uh, and i plug in the ticker uh, on on this website it's t i k r Um, and ticker gives me the financials of this company for the last uh, 10 years or 15 years or whatever and so i just look at the financials the, uh, the the balance sheet the income statement and the cash flow statement i have a few simple things that i do for example one simple test is i see whether revenue has been growing or not for the last 10 years uh, i see whether the company has been revenues or not uh how about the number of shares outstanding is it increasing decreasing or remaining constant what about cash flows uh so uh, are cash flows increasing uh, uh what is the relationship between cash flows and earnings how much capital is required to produce 1 dollar of earnings at this company i i try to infer a bunch of things based on just going through the financials this, this takes me maybe 15 or 20 minutes just to go through the financials and try to form some conclusion about whether this is a company that i want to study further and and then once i form this conclusion if it is a company that i would like to study further so, sometimes it's not uh, sometimes i find that revenue has been declining for a long time or sometimes i find that gross margins are completely erratic at this company some years gross margin is 50% other years gross margin is 10% uh, so companies like this i have absolutely no visibility into uh, I, i feel i have no visibility and i don't think i'll be a good judge of how this company will fare in the next 10 years or something like that so i say okay this is not a company for me uh, so if uh, the company meets all my tests and so on if i think it's a decent company producing good returns on capital uh, making reasonable capital allocation decisions and uh, uh, doing intelligent things uh, with uh, with uh, reinvesting capital back into the business for growth and and so on if i think the business looks reasonable i i will go and pull up the 10k's and 10q's of the company and read it and and then i'll come to my own um, sort of conclusion uh, as to whether this is a good company or not and then i will do a valuation exercise to see whether uh, it's so so investing as uh, michael morbison likes to say it's not j- about finding the horse that is going to win uh, it's about finding the horse whose chances of winning are mispriced in the market so uh, valuation is always an important component so i i don't like to pay too much for companies so when i uh, try to uh, uh, gauge the future of a, of a particular company when i try to make some predictions about what i think the market will do uh, what i think the market for the company's products and services will look like over the next 10 years or something like that 
I typically want to buy the company at a discount to what I think the intrinsic value of the company is. And if if the company is available at that price in the market, then uh, I may go ahead and buy buy some shares. Uh, sometimes I will. Uh, all, I, Typically, I will also look at the options chain for the for the company because sometimes uh, I, I can look at the options chain and uh, I may be able to come to a conclusion that uh, selling call options on the company or something like that may be a more lucrative strategy in the long term than just buying the stock and holding it outright. So I, I may do something like that. So it, it really depends on what the market is telling me at that point. If I think this is a wonderful business supported by fundamental analysis, I may decide either to buy stock if it's available at a reasonable price or uh, to do some options trading uh, on, on the company. I may decide to uh, sell sell a put option or something like that on the company. Um, uh, or I may buy shares and then sell a call option on the company and, and so on. So I... I, I that there are a bunch of strategies that that are available and if if one of them seems like it might produce a reasonable return in the future i may go ahead and do that uh, typically what what you have to do is also um, there are many other companies out there so there is an opportunity cost every dollar that is invested into company a is one dollar that is not available to invest in company b for example so uh, typically what i do is i uh, i have an existing set of companies that I know well and I will not add a new company into the portfolio unless uh, I can get some some reasonable assurance that the return that is produced by this new company is going to at least match the return from my existing companies that I know and love. So there is this opportunity cost analysis as well that that I do mentally. Uh, so the, these are all the broad broad things that I do. Uh, that that's my process for sourcing uh, ideas and then following up on them. Okay, okay. Uh, one one follow up really quick. Do you listen to conference calls? And could you give the names of the podcasts that you get that you source your ideas from? I mean, uh, I don't listen to conference calls, but I like to look at the conference calls transcripts. Uh, so so that. Uh, I'm much faster at uh, reading uh, than at listening. So uh, for for the companies that I'm interested in, I I do look at the conference call transcripts, and they, they are. Uh, so I I use this app called Quarter for um, the for the transcripts, and they they do a pretty good job. Uh, sometimes I read the so I I well whether I listen to the conference call. Uh, uh, whether I read the transcript or not, I always read the 8K for the company. So every time the company comes out with a with a press release, they, they will put out uh, an SEC filing called an 8K. So I usually like to read the 8K. Uh, so ev- every quarter, typically before the 10Q uh, of the company comes out, the company will put out an 8K. And uh, I will read the 8K and then I will decide if I want to read the 10Q or not. Most of the time, there's no real new information in the 10Q that's not already contained in the 8K. But sometimes there is. So I I may look at that as well. And podcasts, well, I listen to a range of different podcasts. So one one of the podcasts I really like is uh, Infinite Loops by Jim O'Shaughnessy. 
and uh, invest like the best by by his son Patrick O'Shaughnessy. So these guys have sort of cornered the uh, podcast market for investing. I think uh, so. I spend a lot of time listening to these podcasts. Then I I also like uh, this week in intelligent investing. That's a very nice podcast. I listen to Acquired, uh, which is a great podcast by uh, Ben uh, Ben and David uh, Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal. I I, I like that podcast a lot. Um, there's also Market Foolery and Motley Fool Money. These podcasts are just more more for news than investing insights. But sometimes I learn about new companies on on those podcasts that I did not know about and and so on. So, yeah, these are the podcasts that come to mind, but I'm sure there are a whole lot of other podcasts I listen to. Some, sometimes I don't really subscribe to a podcast, but I will listen to one or two episodes that really appeal to me, If uh, especially if someone shares, someone whom I respect uh, shares that episode on Twitter or something like that. I may just go and listen to that one episode. So I listen to a lot of episodes, but don't necessarily subscribe to the podcast itself. So that that happens quite a bit too. Okay, thank thank you so much. Sure. Okay, if that is all the questions that we have, uh, thank you all very much. Oh wait, so Rajan is now back. Uh, let's see if uh, he. Uh, uh, sorry for disturbing again. Uh, I just want to ask uh, whether you have got any idea about investing resources for a Indian stock market, and if at all, or if no, it's okay. Um, well, I don't have a whole lot of ideas about investing resources for for the Indian stock market, but one particular website that I'm very impressed by uh, is called Screener, and uh, you can go to the Screener. And you can type in the stock of any uh, Indian company, and typically uh, you can get a whole lot of financial data. It's something like ticker for for the Indian marketplace. Um, so I'm a big fan of ticker for global stocks, uh, but for uh, if, if you're in India and um, you, you you want just data on Indian companies, I think Screener is a is a great website. And uh, so I know many people in India who who use Screener uh, extensively. I meant reading resources. Reading. Um. Well, what what kind of reading resources? I mean, uh, you, you you have like annual reports and things what, like that. Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal. You mentioned for uh, U.S. companies. So, I mean, particular yeah. for Indian. Companies. I don't read Indian newspapers, but um, I, I think the Economic Times is pretty good. Um, some articles in in Mint uh, may be good. Uh, I, I I don't really have a, ho- a whole lot of. Uh, I don't read Indian newspapers, so I I can't give you a definite recommendation. But generally, circulation uh, in the the business and finance newspaper that's got the widest circulation is the Economic Times. So. I'm assuming they do a reasonable job at reporting the news. I I don't know. Uh, I I don't know too much information beyond that. Okay. Thank you for your time. Okay. Sure. It was a wonderful. Thing.
Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so th- thank you all very much for showing up and listening to this podcast. I had a lot of fun. And um, uh, sadly, this is the last episode. So next week on Sunday, we will not be meeting on the call-in app. But I will try to find some other way that we can meet. Uh, it's It's been a lovely experience the last uh, seven months. I would have never thought of myself as a podcast host and Thank you all so much. Some of you are regular listeners. You tune in every week. Uh, Some of you are uh, sort of first-time callers. Some of you are less regular. But uh, I've very much enjoyed interacting with all of you on this platform. And uh, from next week onwards, I'll try to find uh, some other platform. So please uh, watch out. Uh, On on Twitter, I will post uh, updates as to how my search is going and uh, how we will meet next week. So looking forward uh, to seeing you all on uh, whatever future thing that we do together. So I will try to keep the next platform as open as possible. So you don't need to download a separate app or create an account or anything like that. I'll try to keep it open so that all you need is to click on a particular link or something like that, like a Zoom link or something, and you'll be in the call immediately. I'll try to make it like that. Uh, So thank you all very much. This has been a lovely experience. And uh, so goodbye. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.